So many people are looking to live happier, more stress-free lives. We provide interviews from mental health experts across various fields because we know finding quality information isn't always easy. Let's find more sanity together. Welcome back, everybody, to Sanity Podcast. We have our frequent flyer here, Dr. William Sanderson, our not only CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy expert, but evolutionary psychology guru. And it's a beautiful thing that he has merged the things together. And let me say, Dr. Sanderson, doing these episodes with you has really changed the way that I look at therapy, taking this evolutionary perspective and adding it into the work that I'm doing. And it's been incredibly insightful and helpful. Uh, so for those of you guys that don't remember or haven't listened to some past episodes, uh, Dr. Sanderson is a professor of psychology and director of the PhD program in clinical psychology at Hofstra University. He is a founding fellow of the Academy of Cognitive Therapy, and he has published seven books and more than 100 articles and chapters. So you've done the work and learned the things. Great. Thank you. So today, well, let me back it up. We were talking about mismatch theory uh, more at the individual level, and we'll, we'll go into mismatch theory to, to get everybody caught up to speed. Uh, today's episode is really looking at mismatch theory at the societal level. Um, and this morning when I was thinking about coming on and recording the, this episode, that song from like the nineties, it's the end of the world as we know it kept going in my head because it, it's a bit about what we're talking about today. Yes, absolutely. I think, <clears throat> I think it's, uh, existential threats that are in some ways created by our human nature. Um, so why don't we start off and just do a reintroduction to uh, mismatch theory and why it's important for understanding human nature and our talk today? Sure. Well, let me start by um, just sort of giving a, a broad overview of what I think we need to take into account, and then we can have you know, sort of a conversation about it going forward. But uh, so one of the things that I found useful is using an evolutionary lens to understand individual behavior, and this is relevant to clinical psychology, but you can also apply this evolutionary lens to view the world. <clears throat> and I guess the, the bottom line is that I'll sort of be making is that the traits that got us here are the ones that may lead to our destruction. And that is a function of mismatch theory, meaning that the environment that we evolved in was very different. And so we developed certain types of traits, let's say aggression. I'm going to talk a lot about aggression today. And, but the most of our evolutionary history, the best we had was our bare hands. So if we wanted to aggress against someone or some group, our bare hands, maybe a stone, maybe a primitive spear, that's, you know, 99% of our evolutionary history. The mismatch is that in the modern environment, we have guns, uh, it depends how far you want to go, guns, automatic weapons, nuclear bombs, uh, drones, these incredible technologies, but we still have the same brain, and we still have this aggressive impulse, <clears throat> and uh, those things could easily get out of hand and lead to some type of destruction, limited or broadly. Okay, so basically, um, the things that made humans so successful that we um, evolved to have in a different type of environment, 
now doesn't necessarily match with what we need in the modern environment or not fully, not, not right. completely bad, but some of those mechanisms that made us so successful for being apex on, on this planet is also part of what might make us ruin ourselves. Correct. I think just because this point is so important, I'm going to go back to maybe an example I gave on every podcast because it's just easier to understand, <clears throat> which it's eating behavior. So mm -hmm. humans evolved, and I think just something that everyone could relate to, and it's a simple example. But we know that humans, like all species, evolved in a low food uh, uh, availability environment, a food-scarce environment. And so as a result, humans are built, like all other species, to overeat and to prefer high-fat foods because that was an adaptation. If you overate and if you tended to eat fattening foods, you're more likely to survive when there was scarcity, when there was famine. And so that's 99% of our evolutionary history. Well, the mismatch is in the present, right? You can't not bump into food. In fact, mm -hmm. you can't not bump into high-calorie processed foods. I won't even get into super stimuli. I'll just refer people to the second podcast for that. But the idea there's just nothing as good as, you know, Haagen-Dazs ice cream or potato chips that exist naturally. And so it's no surprise that most people have trouble eating in the way they really want whether it be amount or health, right? So that's, that's sort of a basic idea of mismatch. We're built for an environment where these things don't exist as frequently and the nature of them. And it's and causing I, all types of problems, right? All types of health problems in humans. Arguably the biggest killer is, you know, the amount and what we're eating. If you look at most, um, uh, yeah, at, at the, what most people die from. Yeah. Disease is related to those. Sorry, coupled with coupled with inactivity, which is also an evolutionary yeah. trait. Because if you didn't have enough food, then you wanted to burn less calories, particularly yeah. when you had to have a particular active lifestyle to hunt down your food or collect your food. So we are pre-programmed to want to lay on the couch and eat Haagen Dazs ice cream at McDonald's, exactly, which then leads to physical disease states. Correct. We want to order them on Grubhub to boot, so yes. we don't even have to move. I, I have and to I, cancel my Grubhub account, right? And and that's kind of like a one-two punch that has led to the prediction is by 2030 that 50 percent of the U.S. population will be technically obese. Uh, so that which is an enormous uh, increase, obviously, and not explained genetically. Um, last time you, you were on, you, I think it was the last time you were on or, or one of the times you we were talking, you were saying if, if things keep going the way that they are, at least psychologically, like with society, how society is developing, that they would need to create some sort of happy pill in order for us to actually have happiness in the modern world. But what's really interesting regarding uh, weight loss is I'm not sure if you've seen these, but there's these new, um, they're drugs for diabetes, which also are touted for weight loss that are going through like FDA approval and things like that, uh, which really goes on to that concept that you had talked about before, where... Um, we almost need to medicate ourselves to survive in the modern world due to the mismatch causing it, it easy uh, for some of these processes to go awry. Right, right. You're actually, it's sort of a lifestyle problem, but we need a medication to take care of the lifestyle problem because sort of evolution overrides, right, our natural, uh, uh, evolution over, overrides our more rational decisions at times, right? People are aware that they want to eat a certain way or move more, as an example, but they can't do it. And that's because I think these evolutionary uh, uh, traits are so strong. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so when we zoom up uh, to the societal level, what, what do you think are like the main uh, psychological mechanisms going on that are getting us in trouble? Yeah. So yeah, so we'll get right in. We'll get right into this now. And you know, this is uh, definitely uh, could be controversial. Uh, we we could talk about it, but I think um, the focus today, you know, human nature has lots of components, and, and people are busy defining human nature, you know, more and more based on evolutionary psychology. I think the ones that we'll focus on today that are the most relevant is three aspects of human behavior: selfishness, violence. And ethnocentrism. Hmm. And I'm going to use ethnocentrism more broadly here. I know it has more of a specific, it fits, but I just want to be clear a little bit more broadly. The idea that we're a social species and we favor one's group. And, and that's going to be important as we talk about, uh, different things. So you could argue one's group is one's culture, but there's all types of subcultures in the way that, uh, this plays out. And I would argue that these were all adaptations, meaning they provided an advantage throughout evolution. So being more specific, if you were not selfish, if you were not violent, and if you were not ethnocentric, you were less likely to survive. So as a result, these are the traits that are, um, <clears throat> that are, exist in all humans or, you know, human universal, most humans. It's common in the, in the population. Mm -hmm. Um, for people that listen to multiple episodes, most people know by now that I'm like a sci-fi fantasy nerd. Like I love, I just love that stuff. And what is, what are the traits in every single, pretty much every single fantasy book about, you know, cause there's like humans and elves and this, that, and the other humans are always greedy, violent, and they're mm -hmm. always wanting to cast out the, we don't like the elves. Right. Um, right. <clears throat> and fan, and you know, when you think about fantasy, a lot of fantasy writing it actually has an underpinning of trying to understand human nature. And it's interesting that there's this very consistent, I'm not sure if you read these books, uh, maybe I'm teaching yeah, I'm you not, something. I'm not much of a science <clears throat> uh, fiction consumer, but I think, I think what, what you're saying is correct. And what I would argue is, and, and this is sort of an, an in interesting point in its own right, that, that many people believe that uh, like the me, let's say like books and so on create us to be this way. So you read these books and you become that way. But actually from an evolutionary perspective, we sort of flip it and say, look, these writers, the reason they're popular is they're giving humans what they want. They're tapping into their human mm -hmm. nature. And so they find these stories satisfying at some level. And that's why, you know, it's interesting, right? And in, in just in general, like humans really are consumers of violence, right? We watch violent movies. We like violent sports. Uh, so, uh, so we actually consume it. It's not, you know, it's not far from out, not uh, far from being out of our nature. We actually consume, uh, some of these things. Yeah. And like video games, what, what the, video you know, games, there are sports yep. games, but, but a lot of, most of the video games that have been super popular have been, you know, uh, shooting games. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, 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 uh, so that's all in there. Yep. All right. So, um, so maybe, maybe just one, just one more point here, which yeah, would please. be that uh, I guess kind of the bottom line as we move forward, then sort of uh, going back to something I said earlier, just making it more explicit, is you know our evolved human nature plus the modern environment and in particular technology equals an emerging disaster, right? So it's, so it's it's not our nature alone, and it's not the technology alone; it's the combination of the two uh, can create an existential disaster. 
Well, just give us a little taster. What's the rundown of these top existential disasters that you think can arise due to its selfishness, uh, in-out group bias? You call this uh, uh, ethnocentrism. Uh, I, I don't. I forgot the word exactly that you said, but in-group in ethnocentrism, yeah, and and violence, right? Th those were the three: selfishness, violence, and in-out group yeah. bias. Um, so, yeah, they, they operate. So, we'll, we could talk about three. Uh, areas today just to sort of apply this specifically and if you will these traits play out somewhat differently in each of those but they're all there and uh so i i would argue uh we could talk about just because uh you know united states polarization mm -hmm. right, something everyone's aware of especially uh after election day and you know potentially uh the inability to function as a democracy and we may be at that point now uh Two, I would say it's worth looking at nuclear threat. And then three, I would say is, uh, you know, sort of destruction of the earth, but not of the nuclear nature, uh, which would be something more like climate change mm. and, and the ability to deal with something like that. Well, this, you might want to dodge this question, but like, do you feel that humans are evolved to be in a democracy or are we more evolved to be in like a monarchy? Yeah, well, that, that, that's a good, I, th I think it's a good question. For the most part, throughout evolutionary history, humans did not function in a democracy. So it's hard, so technically you could argue that they weren't built for that. If we look at our close uh, evolutionary ancestors, like primates, as an example, they don't function as a democracy. And, uh, you know, I, I, and just to make this point here, that I have to say that I've been talking about this and other people, many people as well have been talking about this, you know, who happen to be particularly interested in evolutionary psychology that about this for a long time. And one of the things that sort of scares me the most is 10 years ago, this might have seemed more um, obscure, uh, you know, fantasy book. Uh, but I have to say just in the last year, as I've been thinking about this more, like none of this stuff seems off the table anymore. And mm -hmm. that's concerning that it's actually moved in that direction. All three of those areas now, it, it's almost cliche at some level to discuss them as though they're, they're shocking. Uh, but that's how it started out. And I think that's, you know, one of my, uh, one of my concerns. Because mm -hmm. part of our survival strategy was if somebody was more successful at gathering resources, uh, we would want to follow them, and that evolved into uh, status symbols, right? Like you know, like they, they could just like birds will reflect a color or whatever. They would use a status symbol to reflect wealth, and we started following that because we're like, okay, if we link up with the guy with the resources or the gal with the resources, then we we were more likely to survive, and we fall in line under those people, and then it kept going and going and going until you know there was kings of of big sloths of land. Yeah, I think if you're, you're right. And, and so I think the idea that, so humans are selfish, but we're a social species. So we have to deploy our selfishness in a somewhat sophisticated way. But the idea is, right, so if you hook on with the person that's particularly good at getting resources, then you're likely to get some resources as well. So that's a good person to cooperate with. Mm -hmm. And someone that's really bad at it is a bad person <laughs> to cooperate with, right? But, but I will say just to, not to derail us here, but, you know, if you look at what's happening in the world right now in terms of leadership, you definitely are seeing, you know, what's referred to as, you know, more right wing or fascist leaders, you know, throughout Europe and South America, 
and you know, maybe the U.S. And I think the idea there is what you're seeing is populations wanting more, you know, put our country first, right? That's part of the, the movement. And it's sort of the opposite of globalization. I think we're moving away from globalization to countries, uh, you know, big and small, literally like, look, let's put our interests first. And I think that's why you're seeing uh, in, in a variety of ways more of a movement in that direction that you just said, like wanting someone to lead them, but not just lead them, lead them in a way that prioritize their needs. Their needs, even even if the person might not be a good fit to do that, just believing that they are a good fit to do that. You just uh, have to believe it. Yeah, they, they may, have... may not be right. But, uh, you know, absolutely. Yeah. Um, in my mind, uh, is that just a part of too much wealth going upwards? So since people don't have as many resources, they feel like the need that they, they need to then protect them. Like, you know, human beings, the more resource scarce we get, the more in-group, out-group we get. Uh, because yeah. we want to collect, re is that or is there more to it? No, I think, uh, so it was a point that I wanted to make is this idea that, you know, humans are just another species competing fiercely with other humans and, and other species to some degree for resources and power, which are necessary for survival. So, so basically, uh, what you could say, and you know, uh, if you think of even like countries as groups, let's let's even look at it broadly like that. I mean, there's no there's no doubt. I think what you've seen is if you take the U.S. and China as you know the you know the most powerful countries, well, they're hardly moving towards uh, cooperation, and I think that um, instead, right, they're moving much more to competition. And that's a very big change than even five or six years ago where there was a sense that, uh, the U.S. sense anyway, that China would behave very differently. Um, and so I think that, um, that and, now, and now we're seeing this enormous competition, and, and I guess the presidents are going to meet together over Taiwan, which was interesting is, uh, within the last month, the New York Times had an article basically saying that Taiwan has the most important resource of uh, that that exists in the in the modern world, and it's microchips. Yeah, chips. And it's for sophisticated microchips, right? So it's not oil so much anymore, uh, and maybe one day you know it was sugar or something like that. But right now it's microchips, and the idea is it's no surprise then that the U.S. and China could possibly come to war over what happens in Taiwan, my guess is, you know, not because anyone cares about the people in Taiwan, according to this model, but instead we care very much about that resource. Okay. So we're seeing polarization in the country, which, I mean, most Americans and non-Americans know very well that's going here, but there's also international polarization too going on. Is, is this right. just the resource phenomenon or uh, like what evidence do we have that it's a resource phenomenon and what else, what other human processes are going on that are driving this? Like how does mm -hmm. it all come together? Yeah. Well, I, I think that this gets back to the mismatch theory because a lot of it is awareness, right? And, and we could, we sort of come to that. I mean, it might be easier to talk about the specific examples to illustrate this because the in each example, it's slightly different. Mm -hmm. So, so we could maybe, maybe we could start, uh, you know, in a bit with maybe the first topic we could start with is the U.S. Uh, polarization. 
But, but one thing I want to sort of come back to just to, but again, sort of almost as an introduction, uh, you know, to this topic, just to sort of highlight, uh, something is that, that not only do humans, uh, compete fiercely with other humans for resources, but humans are a very aggressive species and aggression and violence was selected for because it was adaptive. And I mentioned that before. Mm-hmm. And that humans go beyond any other species in horrific aggression, like torture and mass genocide. So I just think it's important at the outset to sort of recognize that, you know, we think of humans as these uh, superior creatures, maybe peaceable creatures. I don't know if someone still holds those ideas or, you know, deep down we're good. But, uh, but far from that, right? There's no species that can compete with humans in the scale of her, or horror that they could create for other humans. And uh, so that's worth sort of thinking about um, as we're going forward. Um, but, and, and by the way, the, the forms of aggression, right, go everywhere from verbal threats to physical violence to m- murder, homicide, and are often used to obtain resources. And so we could put like a war as an example there, but we could come back to that. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay, so I, you brought up a very interesting thing, like like torture. Like, how much sense does torture make on a utility level, right? Because it, 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 violence is just utility, meaning uh, protecting something, getting something that I need. Mm-hmm. Um, like, where does even torture come into play? Unless we are particularly, it's almost like an over evolution of some sort of aggressive tendency, or am I missing something? Yeah, well, I think, um, so, right, humans are the smartest species, so, you know, we're more complex, and there's good things and bad things that come from that, but if you look at, if you look at something like torture, as an example, like, especially maybe during, you know, wars where apparently this is relatively common, that I think it's partly what's again coming back to understanding human nature, because, um, Human nature is very focused on retribution and punishment. And oftentimes what you see in situations where there's the most torture is where, you know, in the course of a war, this idea that this, some other group or people were sort of putting them down and now they're in power. And, you know, it's almost, uh, I mean, there's something uh, about the sadisticness that actually is, um, you know, pleasurable, I don't know if that's the right word here, but satisfying in some ways. And, uh, and so that's, once again, it, it, it's part of a more complex brain that doesn't even just care about domination, which would be the purpose of aggression, but that actually uh, needs more than that in some ways to be satisfying. And that's where, you know, kind of torture might come in. Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, so th- this aggressiveness, it sounds like the, the selfishness principle comes down to the, the political polarization, but may, it, does the aggressiveness go into that as well? Or is that more so on the side of uh, mutual self-destruction that you were yeah. talking about? So, yeah, so let, let's, uh, so I, I think, um, if you will, the selfishness is what guides our behavior in general. And then the aggression is what allows us to, uh, uh, you know, kind of, um, 
accomplish if you if you're able to aggress, accomplish what you want. But let, let's go through the examples because I think this will be uh, easier to to talk about. Given that what that's hard to to uh, have all three with the same exact principles, the levers get pushed a little bit different for each. But let, let's start. I mean, I think uh, something that everyone's concerned about in the United States is is polarization, right? The idea that you've heard this idea that it's almost like we have two different countries in some ways. And uh, so we, it's, it's worth thinking about, like, well, how does that happen? And so I'll sort of start with all these examples of thinking about what the function, what the value of something is, especially in an evolutionary context. So uh, when we think about polarization, um, it's very much related to uh, this, uh, what's referred to as an us versus them mechanism, or often referred to as tribalism. And the idea that that this, uh, the, whatever you call it, was actually adaptive and selected for. And what it means is that people who form groups, very close in-group, but competed with other groups, tended to do better, right? So you had your small group of maybe 150 people, and you competed with other groups for resources. And the idea is that, uh, that by get, by sort of, con- um, creating these groups, these smaller groups, you have very high in-group cooperation, but out-group lack of cooperation, right? So, th- so when you're creating these in-groups, it's high in-group cooperation, but it leads to less cooperation with other groups. And, so the idea was, once again, those that did that, this is always the same principle, those who behave that way were more likely to survive and pass on their genes, and so it's represented in us. So I think the idea is what you've seen, so there were always there was always polarization in the U.S. There was people with different political ideas and different ideas, but it wasn't quite what it is now. And let, now we could get into, I think, the, the idea of mismatch. So what's different now, though, is the amount of attention that is put on this and also the way the media spins it because they know people more likely to watch it or use it, whether we talk about traditional media like television or social media. And it really has put this process on steroids, right? So just as an example, let's take two people that have different political views and one person is their political views might be consistent with MSNBC, and the other person's political views may be consistent with Fox. And I think most people know this, right? But one is sort of a more left-leaning channel, and the other is a more right-leaning channel. So what happens is it actually maximizes their sense of these differences, right? And, And it's deliberate. If you watch either of these channels, what you'll see is right. They're trying to create this sense of moral indignation or righteousness. Like there's other groups going to do you wrong, and we've you've got to stay with your group. That's kind of the message here, and they really focus on that. And I think uh, and social media does that. Like Twitter, as an example, there's research on that. And what it ends up doing is increasing the polarization by increasing the strength that people feel these things to be the case. Versus maybe something that's more nuanced, where people could think like, oh, this person has a different opinion with me, but I could be their friend 
to like, no, no, this person's like out to ruin me and I need to be their enemy. You know, I've even seen articles in New York Times and other publications, things like, you know, my wife voted for a Republican or a Democrat, depending on which way, can I still be married to her? <laughs> right? I mean, it's really gotten to that point now where this is like so self-defining. Uh, and I think the media has, uh, has not human nature existed in this way. The media is just exacerbating it and that leads to further polarization. So it's no coincidence probably that with the media explosion, you know, combination of like cable television and specific channels devoted to, you know, specific viewpoints plus social media that actually, you know, sort of selects for it news that's going to continue to feed you what you want to believe, what you believe already. These processes have been uh, created all types of problems, including polarization. Well, two points. Uh, they wouldn't be very successful if we didn't want to digest that. And that goes back to your point about what when I brought up the fantasy books, that human beings like to digest certain things. So the media, if they were to polarize and we didn't like it or or there wasn't some sort of gratification from it, we probably mm -hmm. wouldn't con consume it. Well, I, I don't know if like it is the thing, but, but we're, we're wired to to digest that. Yeah. Um, well, think of, uh, you know, I've, I've talked to people about this who say like, uh, oh, I, I watch these shows at night. They upset me. They wind me up and I can't fall, fall asleep. And I'm like, well, did you learn anything from watching it? And they usually say, no, I, I knew everything already. But I think what, what they do is they create this sense. I'm going to come back to this idea of like of moral indignation. And that's satisfying. Humans like that story. That feels good, and it, it's it's sort of at some level the basis of this sort of in-group uh, uh, connection where you all have share this same kind of moral principle, right? You're out to save whatever, mm -hmm. and and that is very binding within the group, and so it's sort of a positive feeling. I mean, think the, the idea of um, if your story is like you know your moral and righteous and the other side's not, that feels good. It may or may not be accurate, but mm -hmm. right, it's definitely a very powerful motive and people want to share it with others. They don't want to feel it themselves. So to some degree you share it with the media, you know, you, people feel connected to the media, but then people also share it with their friends and so on. Um, I, and I'm not sure that if, that if you looked in, into this, but there's like a, a part of the prefrontal cortex that's suspected to be our area of, of fitting into some sort of cultural or societal unit. Um, and it's a mm -hmm. very strong overriding part of the brain. And it doesn't necessarily need to be logical. In, in, in many ways, it, it, it causes you to be illogical when there's something that's going against the group. And the more rejection that you feel, that not, not from the in-group, from the out-group, the mm -hmm. stronger that part of the brain can take over and the more they could override more sensible parts um, of your thinking. So ne neurologically, there is a command center for this uh, societal the societal thinking. And, and they're looking at this and they're looking how to turn it on mm -hmm. and how to shut it off. And, and cooperation with an outgroup, actually, uh, they found help decrease the activation of that part um, and allowed people to, to lower their biases. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, I mean, that, that's an interesting proximate causation, right? That's what's happening in the brain. 
So mm-hmm. usually with evolutionary psych, we're focused more on like, why does that brain mechanism exist to begin with? So it's very interesting. Everything probably reduces down to some mechanism in the brain uh, in yeah. terms of the, in these nature. But I, I think that, you know, what's, what's important about that is yes, the more you feel threatened, that's sort of my point to some degree. The other side, the, the, you know, the, the media that on your side is making you feel more threatened by the other side. And as a result, you're going to stick more to their side. Right. And, and so that, I think that's a big, uh, a part of it. And I think that, um, that when you, uh, when you kind of look at the rationality piece, which is very interesting, you're right. I mean, the, uh, people that have been studying this believe that communication among humans is not for the sake of communication of facts. It's actually to bond with other members or to, to know who you shouldn't be bonding with. <laughs> and so the idea is that sometimes, uh, that people can believe something that objectively is not true, but yet bond on it in some ways, like extreme beliefs in particular. And, uh, and, and a lot of times it's not factual at all, or at least the factual basis of it is not known. I think we saw this really play out during the COVID pandemic, but, uh, where, where people had all types of opinions that, but we had very little data. And, but yet people took very strong, um, formed very strong opinions and based on their group with, you know, the way their groups are versus the other group, so to speak. And we even saw like, you know, people that believed in vaccines versus not masks versus not, uh, you know, the origin of the pandemic and so on. You had these like pretty strong groups, uh, differences there. Uh, and people had, you know, more difficulty seeing some of the nuances there. So yeah. So the, the idea is that, uh, if you look at communication as bonding, so people will, you know, disclose information about themselves. And then like, so, so I guess the more things that don't fit what you believe in at some level, you're bonding with them less. And mm-hmm. on the other hand, like people that are within a group, they like to share their beliefs. And I think that's what you see on social media and the media is it's, you know, pretty much people preaching to the choir, but there's something satisfying about that because they're bonding. Well, that that rejection mechanism that I brought up might be doubly down here because right now in politics is, well, if you believe that, I can't talk to you. There's something wrong with you. Right. You're bad. So basically it's, in, it's inherent rejection in there, which then furthers, if that mechanism is to be true, it, it doubles down on this principle and furthers the separation because yeah. now you're rejected on top of it. Yeah. And just to play it further, you know, I've always been involved in politics. So, uh, you know, I've been following it for a long time. I think that just to even take further what you said, it's also not, let's say, let's, if you take an, an issue, it's not that you believe something different. It's that you're a bad person. You're immoral in some ways, right? That's often what it boils down to where people will take that frame ultimately. And depending on their viewpoint, they will actually make it seem like it's not just a different idea that you're immoral and you're you're a person that you're not to be dealt with. And I think that's part of the polarization hmm. that we've seen. So, I mean, do the evolutionary people like talk about this? Is it is it that um, we evolve this needing to morally justify 
um, our aggressive nature so we could sleep at night? That the, the reason why we fall into that? Am I just speculating here? Because it yeah. seems to no, make no, sense. That, yeah, I mean, that, as people thinking about this and the idea is like, you're right, like we need a story to tell ourselves that makes it acceptable, the bad things that we do. So if you were to invade a country and say, look, we want to keep our oil prices low, and so we need to make sure that, you know, this is, you know, operating for us. And there's been wars over this. Well, then that's not a great story. It's acknowledging our selfishness, but it's not a story that we want to believe. But if you say, like, look, there's this bad guy there. He's doing horrible things to people. And we're going to do a good deed here. We're going to go and, you know, and free the people uh, from this tyrant. Uh, well, that's a story that's nice to believe. People have done analysis of these types of wars. They've shown it's not true, but it sounds nice, right? And uh, and so, right, much of this is storytelling in order to, uh, you know, kind of make, like, it's it, it almost hides what we're really doing from ourselves. Although it's not so hard to miss, right, if you really look. All you have to do is pick up front page of any newspaper or website or whatever, it, you know, the, the landing page, and you could see, like, Pretty horrible behavior perpetrated by most groups. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was just thinking, like, do, the leaders don't necessarily need to believe this stuff. It, it, they more have to, like, they, they might be saying, I'm going in for the oil, but I need to sell this to the people. And so they, yeah. like, you know, people that are savvy then have an instinctual knowledge that if you give people moral justification, they're going to back you up. Yeah, right. Or I they might believe, believe the leadership, it. Yeah, I, well, I, don't, I don't think they normally do believe it, to be honest. Because otherwise, it wouldn't be always so, um, you know, I mean, there's wars in the Middle East, let's say, compared to, uh, you know, maybe like places in Africa that are low in resources that we care about. So I don't think it's just coincidental. So my sense is someone's aware of it. Uh, and and uh, and but but you can't sell it in that way or, you know, maybe you can. I don't know. But they don't sell it in that way. I, I think at least it would be honest to sell it in that way. And so, right, so then it becomes more of a more, and we feel, by the way, we feel good about it, right? This idea um, uh, that, um, uh, I'm, I'm blocking on his first name, but Christopher, Christopher Hitchens wrote this book uh, uh, that was all about how, like, war is this elixir for us. Like, we, we feel good, you know, if you think of the beginning of the Iraq invasion, there was, like, this unification of the country, uh, it's shown in polls and so on, you know, people sort of wearing flags on their lapels. So we really thought it was going to be a good thing. I mean, that was the way it was presented, and it turned out to be a disaster, right? So, uh, but but in the beginning, right, that that's yeah. how it was sold, right? It was, it was liberation. Yeah, I forgot which World War I was watching a documentary. In England, the, these kids were faking being of age to, to get drafted. Right. Like they were lying and trying to go to different, all these different uh, recruitment areas because they wanted to be part of the war effort. Yes. Right. Yeah. No, there's, uh, you know, there, there could be a big buy in, in, in that. And, uh, look, it's not to say there's never wars worth fighting, but, but many of them are really about resources. There is a book on this that looks at U.S. wars. And I think it's Stephen Kinzer, uh, where he actually does an analysis from like Hawaii to Iraq. Uh, there's, I think there's 11 wars, and, and he sort of shows that they were all about resource uh, acquisition. Okay, so um, b before we jump jump over to um, more more destructive, like at like uh, climate change and, and nuclear weapons, 
what what might we be able to do about this? So the media is selling us what we want and supercharging us. We have this in-sexual in-group, out-group. We're communicating in such a way to just have a confirmation bias because we want to see who's in our in-group or out-group. And then we instinctually act aggressively towards an out-group when we feel like there's threat, right? I feel like that's the, the nutshell here of what's going on with this polarization. Uh, although I would be interested to hear more about your take as to why this polarization is happening. So yeah, why, why and, what, and what can we do about it? There we go. Yeah. Well, I think the why is that once again, there are always groups. There's always people of different opinions, but, but we were able to coexist before in a different way, right? Every, you know, Senate vote didn't come down to exactly how we know it's going to go. That, that's a relatively new phenomenon. And, and they have to, right, they have to, honor their group, so to speak. And so there's very little voting outside of party, uh, as an example. So it was there before. The question is, you know, why is it developed? I would argue it's kind of, it's been so highlighted. It's been part of people's sense of identity now, where they fall in this. So therefore it's more threatening when it doesn't go their way or may not go their way. What you can do about it is complicated because you know, if you will, it's hard to stop technology. Uh, the, the one thing I would argue is that I would, you know, suggest for people to limit their media use to, to one hour a day, just find out information and get off, not watch any of those shows like, you know, CNN or MSNBC or Fox, which are all, once again, presenting not news, but opinion. And, um, and, that might that would probably reduce it a bit, but people are addicted to this, right? They they love these shows because you know because uh, of the of the feeling uh, that it creates. I think though that ultimately we're going to have to figure out that if we continue going down this path, it's really going to hurt our style of living uh, because um, what it's done essentially is not allow us to focus on competing with more significant threats. And instead, we're like infighting. I actually wrote a, a a piece on my Psychology Today blog, which is our evolutionary selves is the piece, but us versus us in the U.S., sort of pointing out that like we've taken our eye off. At that time, that was about two years ago. I think our eye has changed a bit now, our vision. We've taken our eye off the fact that there's other countries that are competing fiercely with us, China and Russia in particular, who are other dominant countries, and Right. They have a leadership that doesn't have to deal with polarization. I'm not recommending that leadership, but, mm -hmm. and as a result, they're going to move ahead, especially China, right? Russia has its own problems, but they're clearly going to move ahead because of their, uh, you know, and I think they've just given G a lifetime contract or something equivalent to that. So once again, I'm not, um, supporting that type of leadership, but they'll definitely move ahead because there's no infighting that's making a difference anyway in terms of the way they move forward. And the United States is clearly stumbling trying to move forward. I, I mean, I, I feel like it has to be more than just media. Like, I'm not saying that, of course, you know, you think about uh, percent of variance uh, for, for, for people. Percent of, uh, any cause has 100%, and percent of variance is yeah. what percent of that 100%. So, I mean, I know we probably don't have a research study to know what the actual percent of variance is. It might be pretty influential. But... Um, um, uh, it seems like there's also attributes of people being left behind and being a bit more research resource starved that that might also be driving this uh, as well. Yeah, well, I think I think that's how the groups form, though. So I, I would argue the the groups form 
in that way. Like if, if you look at what's again, it's just take like the right versus the left. The, the demographics are quite dramatically different. Mm-hmm. So, so I think what you're saying is true. I would argue that's how the groups form. But the question is what sort of inflames these groups further than ever before. Is the and media. you're right, we don't have the research, but just sort of correlationally, it seems like as media usage has increased, these problems have increased. Now, it could be the other way around, as you know, with correlation. So I'm just sort of hypothesizing sure. that uh, to be the case. I think there is some decent research, though, with like especially platforms like Twitter, suggesting that the direction of causality may be more the media on people's attitudes than their attitudes lead them to consume certain media. That's, I think that's the point you're making here. Uh, yeah, well, cause, I, cause part of this, I, and, and I know that we're just speculating, but I, I'm, you know, if resources, if there was more equity and distribution, would that then cool things down? So regardless how much media is pumping you up, if you're, if there's no, if the pump up is not necessary for you because you don't feel like you're under threat, so the in versus out group bias then decreases. And this is all hi- hypothetical, right? Yeah, no, we're no, talking no, about the econ- theoretical psychology. Yeah, yeah, the economy right matters. That that things like inflation uh, matter because people uh, become more anxious and feel more betrayed when things like that are happening. Especially, you know, there's the haves and the have-nots. In in those, so all those things matter. Yeah, I mean, once again, there's a complexity to this beyond the way I'm presenting it. I think, though, what I'm sort of coming back to is this idea that that the those factors would always be playing out to some degree, and this is inflaming it. And doesn't the irony is it doesn't allow you to really deal with the real problems, right? That's the mm-hmm. problem because it sort of distracts you from that. And um, but yeah, no, I think you know, I mean, you know, we talked about uh, selfishness and. Uh, resource distribution throughout the country, throughout the world, right, is is not equal, and that creates its own problems, enormous problems, uh, okay. and so that's that's sort of driving this as well. So, yes. so I, I I think I just had a light bulb moment of 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 what you're saying is that that other other periods in human nature there has been even worse resource scarcity, but without the media and being able to hook in that easily and communicate so easily, uh, it, it was harder to light as big of a fire when this was happening, which current technology allows you to have. Sorry if I was a little, like, took yeah, me a yeah, second no, for right, it to fully because, sink in. Yeah, I mean, these are, it's absolutely, it's complicated to get the point, but you're right. So the I would, I, just coming back to the idea, like, I think these things exist always. Always, The question I is, see. why is it now a problem? You could argue maybe there's more unfair resource distribution now than before. I'm not sure that's 100% yeah. true. Yeah, I mean, there's some, true. at the extremes there is, definitely, but... In general, it may not be, uh, but but yeah, I, but there is unequal resource distribution that could lead to the way people form their groups and uh, and how they attempt to gain power to access resources. And I think that that's what continues to get uh, the the flame that continues to get fanned by the media. I see. And you also talked about countries going more more conservative, uh, more countries following like strongman mentality leaders, as they say, like on the news. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that's also media driven or is there a different human process going on more that that is hap- I, I mean, I, I know that that was a little bit of a stronger trend during the pandemic and and right. I guess right before the pandemic, too. Um, mm-hmm. Do you feel like it's the same explanation here? Well, I think that, yeah, so combining those factors, I think people are 
more scared about resources throughout the world for a variety mm-hmm. of reasons, the pandemic and cost and inflation, those things matter. And I think as a result, people want someone to take care of them and correct those problems. And it's often the type of person that's going to put their needs first, right? And, you know, if you will, the Make America Great slogan is is employed in all of these countries. And this is going to, once again, sort of feed into, a, a, you know, a lot of people's ideas, and maybe not a bad one, that they need to be taken care of. And I think that's why you're starting to see you know, movement in those directions. Uh, and they're also, and, and you had talked about this before, that social media and media in general and, and human comparison, it's also much easier for somebody across the world to see what's going on somewhere else and have a resource comparison where that was not really feasible in 1930. Right, right. I mean, you know, I mean, at some level, even, you know, 1970, you might get a picture from somewhere else, but you couldn't, you know, literally like look at that place in real time through a camera and see the way other people are living. And then certainly then things like Instagram and those types of platforms, you know, show different lifestyles of the, of the rich and famous or, or friends and so on. So yeah, these, these things are definitely, um, uh, you know, highlighting some of these differences. Mm-hmm. Cause, cause humans generally want more. Uh, you know, what, what we have, we, we accustom to very quickly and then we want more. And so when you see other people have more, it's a natural instinct to say, I want that, or it's unfair that I don't have that. Right. Yeah. No, the, the research on this actually shows that wanting more is usually driven by comparison rather than just wanting more. <laughs> right. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. you want more when you see someone have more. Yeah. And, uh, Right. And so, the, and that's the, the, you know, the fuel, the, the bad news about this is it doesn't matter how much you have, as long as someone has more, you still want more right now. Yeah. And, and, and that's, there, there's a lot of interesting research, uh, on that. There's a book out now, the status games, recent book that I, I forgot the author's name, but he really, he's not an evolutionary psychologist, but it's in that framework and it's quite interesting. I, I love when you come on the show. I, I love talking about it. I find this so fascinating. Um, all right. So why don't we take a, a quick pause here? We're going to have a second episode that will be released at the same time as this one, uh, where we're going to talk more about uh, the, these other factors of destruction of the earth of the non-nuclear kind and nuclear threat. Okay. So stay tuned. And if you keep listening, you'll be right back. <laughs> 